welcome to the Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Counterspin, The Young Turks, The Rachel Maddow Show, The Colbert Report, Mother Jones Radio, Real Time with Bill Maher, and The Daily Show. the distance between public sentiment and the corporate media is striking. On September 25th, the New York Times fronted their new poll on various political issues, ranging from Afghanistan to the health care overhaul, which the article's lead said made people anxious and confused. But to get to the really newsworthy part, you had to read the article from the bottom up, where you'd quickly find this buried gem, quote, on one of the most contentious issues in the health care debate, whether to establish a government-run health insurance plan as an alternative to private insurers, nearly two-thirds of the country continues to favor the proposal, close quote. What's more, the poll actually asked whether people supported the government offering everyone a government-administered health insurance plan like Medicare. That would be more ambitious than even some of the public option proposals discussed in Congress. In other words, the public prefers a substantially more progressive health care plan than anything being discussed in the Beltway or in the corporate media. In fact, they seem to support some something resembling the Medicare for All concept that was trashed in the previous Sunday's New York Times. But after being buried, that news was quickly erased from the Times' memory. In a story four days later about the Senate Finance Committee voting not to add a public option to the committee's health care bill, the paper reported, quote, the votes vindicated the middle-of-the-road approach taken by the committee chairman, Senator Max Baucus, close quote. The Times' poll had found just 26% opposed to a public option. To call the approach favored by the rightmost one-quarter of public opinion middle of the road is something. sort of comparing you to the Joe Wilson situation, the no, congressman. The well, well, how is it not the same? Because I didn't insult the president in front of 40 million people. But you did insult Republicans. Every Republican. No, they what the Republicans really have been doing is an insult to America. But you're They've been dragging their feet. These are, are foot-dragging, knuckle-dragging Neanderthals who think they can dictate policy to America by being stubborn. And I think it's, the time is over. We had an election. That's it. Now we have to move ahead in just the way the president wants but, us to. But this is name. You, I mean, you've just called Republicans Neanderthals. This is the kind of name calling that people were upset at Joe Wilson for doing to the president of the United States. I mean, why is your name calling to all of your Republican colleagues any different from Joe Wilson's? Well, listen. I didn't call names. What I said is true. Mm -hmm. The Republicans no, have nothing even remotely resembling a plan. And when you don't have a plan, what that means is your plan is don't get sick. Should so what I said is true. Should what Joe Wilson said, on the other hand, is false. Should health care be a food fight, though? Or should it be sort of a thoughtful conversation about important Listen, ideas? Listen, I'm new to this, okay? I've only been in Congress now for barely eight months. And I wish when I came to Congress I saw some thoughtful opposition from the other side. But instead, all they do is drag their heels day after day. No, this is great stuff. Again, a couple more clips. All right, these are just audio, though. He, he, Grace will follow it up by saying, I'm coming for you. I'm coming. Then? I'm hunting them down. I'm going to hunt you down. Had enough. It's going to stop. I'm going to attack it. End of this. I keep going all day long. I am going to be the cop that stops it. You're going to get it. <laughs> You're going to get it. And Grace is the guy who's going to give it to you. Now, look. In the middle of that, he said, what? I didn't do any name-calling. That's not true. <laughs> yes, he did. He just called them knuckle-dragging Neanderthals. 
but it's about damn time somebody did, okay? Because that is what they have been for all this time, and the Democrats sit back and take it in their polite, and then, but my favorite part of that clip, other than him calling them Neanderthals, is when the guy says, shouldn't this be, you know, a thoughtful discussion rather than a food fight? And Grayson's like, where have you been, man? He's like, ever since I've been here, all it's been is a food fight. All it's been is name calling. And he's 100% right. They hit him with the death panels. They hit him with pulling the plug on grandma. And the list goes on and on. They did it again today. Michelle Bachman did it with the sex clinics. And he says, in the, where, did I miss the intelligent conversation? Where did that happen, right? So if these are the rules we're playing by. Well, you know what? I'm going to suit up. Let's go get him. And are you going to apologize? Eh, it's a little bit more high-pitched on this one, but this is basically what he had to say. Hell no! <laughs> Hell no! <laughs> All right, man, I can't get enough of this Grayson guy. I can't get enough. All right, I'm going to go to one more clip. Uh, this is uh, clip number six. Let's do it. You can disagree with the Republicans on health care, and you can say they don't have a plan, and you can say whatever they're trying to do is disrupt the Democrats' efforts to try to get health care reform passed. But to then go one step further and say they want sick people to die quickly, that, that's a huge, huge insult. Well, isn't that exactly what the insurance companies want? But to isn't say they, they, want they want people, sick and people who to is die it? quickly. Who is it that are, are inspiring the Republicans to be stubborn this way and to fight every conceivable reform of any kind that's in any area, if not, not the insurance companies? You're, you're accusing the Republicans of supporting death panels now. Am I understanding that correctly? Look, would you support, would you stand with Republicans who want portability? Who want to be able to shop across state lines? You know, who, want, who support honestly, uh, eliminating pre-existing If you're conditions. the Republican who's in favor of that, you're the only one I've heard of to say that. Well, no, and actually, I deal with them every single day. That's the common Republicans denominator in all the House. They simply said no, no, so you would. no, no. So you're no. saying you would if that's Republicans That's a Democratic plan. What about what a you senator like Democratic a Democratic plan? No. Uh, you think you can steal the emperor's will. clothes that way? Congressman, oh, would actually the Republican approach? By the way, the insurance companies support that. How did you react when Sarah Palin, the former governor of Alaska, the Republican vice presidential nominee accused Democrats and the president of the United States of wanting to create death panels. How did I react? I said to myself, I wish Sarah Palin read the bill. Because that's not what this bill says. The Democratic bill doesn't do anything even approaching that. That's a scare tactic. What I said, on the other hand, is the God's honest truth. And truth is an absolute defense. <laughs> uh, he's not backing down an inch. So now, an interesting thing happened there, okay? You see how he shifted the debate? All of a sudden, when he talked about how the Republicans want people to die, right, then they had to bring out all the times the Republicans talked about how the Democrats want people to die, the death panels, the Sarah Palin, et cetera, and then all of a sudden the Republicans are on defense. And then, for the first time I've seen on television, a Republican actually, Castellanos, a Republican strategist, actually suggested something substantive. Why? Because he got put on the defense. And he's like, well, what do you mean we don't say anything substantive? No, 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 we have something substantive. Uh, portability. We can get, take the insurance across state lines. And you know what the really funny thing is? That's not a bad point. It, we'll talk about that more on the show later. But that proposal is not a bad proposal, which is that, hey, instead of limiting all the insurance to, uh, to just state by state, then you get rid of the state lines and let all the insurance compete in all the different areas. That would bring us more competitiveness. Great. Now, Grayson says that's a Democratic proposal. To be fair, the Republicans, I did hear that from some Republicans in the Senate side, okay? Fantastic. If, if the result of Grayson calling out the Republicans is, for the Republicans to actually do substantive proposals, <laughs> my God, he, he'd have accomplished something bigger than I imagined. So he's got the Republicans playing defense. And most importantly, they've changed the conversation. Okay, they've changed the conversation from what's wrong with the Democratic plan to what's wrong with the Republicans who don't want to help people and who are letting them die. That's what I'm talking about. That's how you frame an issue. All of a sudden, the question isn't what's wrong with the Democratic plan. The question is what's wrong with the Republicans? Why don't they want to help people? And the question is more important than the answer.
begin tonight um, with a new campaign to terrify you about health care reform. Within Congress, where what's going to happen is actually being worked out, the action is all among Democrats. And frankly, things are happening really fast now. Pressure from the left for major reforms is heavy, and it is starting to change the range of what's possible. Conservative Democratic Senator Max Baucus saying in an interview with the New York Times late today that because of pressure from the left, he will make more generous the subsidies in his bill to help people afford health insurance. Over in the House, the lead conservative blue dog Democrat on health care, Mike Ross of Arkansas, was hit at the end of last week with ads that threatened a Democratic primary challenger against him if he didn't support real reform, including the public option. Well, now Congressman Ross has been hit with devastating poll results, highlighting the risks of his stance against the public option to compete with private health insurance. This poll was commissioned by the liberal website Daily Coast, but it was carried out not by a liberal group, but by the non partisan traditional polling firm called Research 2000. The poll found that in Mike Ross's Arkansas district, voters in general are in favor of the public option. Independent voters in the district specifically are in favor of the public option. And among Democrats in Mike Ross's district, Democrats were in favor of the public option by a whopping 74%. That's the hardball context in which the specifics of what our new healthcare system is going to be like are being worked out. It's being worked out among Democrats. Republicans are just not a major part of the legislative process right now, as evidenced by the fact that even a senior Republican senator like Orrin Hatch today offered an amendment to the Baucus health care bill, singling out, and I quote, any state with a name that begins with the letter U to get special federal health care assistance. When your policy suggestions could double as skits about the alphabet on Sesame Street, it may be fair to say that you're not doing the real heavy lifting in developing legislation. But even as Republicans become more and more irrelevant to the content of any health reform bill, they are launching new attacks on the whole idea of reform itself. And they're scary. After promoting the idea that health reform was a secret plot to kill old people and a secret plot to take away veterans' health care and a secret plot to kill women with breast cancer and a secret plot to deny health care specifically to Republicans and even a secret plot to deny care to disabled children. That one was particularly classy. Just when you thought they might be running out of groups of Americans to scare about what secret plot lurks within health reform, they found a new one. A new survey being sent out by the National Republican Senatorial Committee says that health reform is actually a plot to deprive you of health care on the basis of your race. And you know, the president is black, so we don't want to give you any ideas, but guess which race is going to be discriminated against? Yeah, under the heading, Rationing and Restricting Health Care, on this fundraising fake survey from the Republican Party, appears this question, quote, Are you concerned that health care rationing could lead to a quota system which would determine who would get treatment on the basis of race or age? We're not saying that's going to happen, but hypothetically, would that sort of thing concern you? Although they have been among the worst offenders in terms of scaring Americans by making stuff up about health reform, the Republican Party is not exactly alone here. Consider this letter that has been sent out from the health insurance company Humana to its older customers. Quote, millions of seniors and disabled individuals could lose many important benefits and services. In addition to that not being proposed by anyone in any of the health care bills under consideration, that sort of disingenuous health reform fear-mongering might also be illegal. Humana is now being investigated by the Department of Health and Human Services because the government pays Humana to provide Medicare Advantage coverage to Medicare patients. And by virtue of that, Humana has agreed to abide by some marketing rules, marketing rules that are basically in place so Medicare patients won't be confused about who's sending them information about their benefits, confused between their insurance company and the government. 
Now, in this case, Humana says they don't think they broke the rules, but they are cooperating with the investigation nonetheless. Meanwhile, an advocacy group called Consumer Watchdog on Friday released a sheaf of internal underwriting guidelines from the industry that make clear just how sweet the deal has been for companies in the current system and how bad that system has been for those of us trying to use it to get our health needs met. Blue Cross of California guidelines from 2004, for example, said you could be disqualified from health coverage in certain circumstances if you had varicose veins. HealthNet guidelines from 2006 said that you could be denied coverage or charged higher premiums if you ever had treatment for toenail fungus or allergies. HealthNet said you could be rejected from coverage if you were pregnant or if you were an expectant father. Yes, who could ever be expected to cover a high-risk freak like that? A company called Pacific Care in 2003 not only said that pregnancy or being an expectant father were grounds for automatic rejection of health coverage, they also refused coverage to police officers and firefighters as a class. What's actually scary about health care is what passes for a health system in this country now. Why again is anyone in Congress fighting to preserve the industry that brought us the genius idea that police officers don't deserve health insurance in America? Why is it so important to preserve that system? Joining us now is Wendell Potter. He's a former health insurance executive turned whistleblower. He was head of public relations for Cigna, one of the nation's largest insurers. He's now a senior fellow on health care at the Center for Media and Democracy. Mr. Potter, thanks very much for joining us again tonight. Thank you, Rachel. And also, I was at Humana for a few years, too. Ah which makes it all the more relevant to have you here. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I, I have to say that I was upset. I was sort of shaken up by these industry documents that were made public um, this weekend. Internal rules that say you can't cover police officers, you can't cover firefighters, don't cover anyone who's going to have a baby. Uh, this pre-existing condition system was created by the industry. What was the purpose of it and how has it worked out for them? Well, it's worked out great for them. They've uh, been able to avoid paying out billions of dollars in claims over the years because of this system that the industry created. And they did this primarily to be able to avoid anyone who might need health insurance. Uh, they've been They've had such a sweet deal over many years uh, by avoiding or not having to accept anyone who applied for coverage who might have had some kind of illness in the past. Uh, in fact, there are some professions in the, in the industry that in the past they've actually written do not quote. So it's something, and in fact, uh, health care workers are among those that health insurance companies would rather not have to cover if they, could, if they had a choice. What about when somebody already has coverage? Um, do do pre-existing condition clauses uh, factor after somebody's already been granted coverage in order to avoid paying specific claims or in order to drop them? Absolutely does. And this is in the individual market where someone doesn't have access to health insurance in the workplace. You have to fill out an application and you are expected to try to remember everything that you can uh, in, throughout your medical history, throughout your life. If you miss something, if you uh, forget something, then if you do get sick, if you do have medical claims, the insurance company will go back and look at that application, and they will have better memory. They will have better records than you will have memory. And they very, they're very often they will cancel your coverage, uh, even though you've paid premiums year and year, year in and year out, every every month on time, even if you had acne or something like that. Right. When we, when we look at the prospects for re reform right now, um, the idea of getting rid of pre-existing conditions is something that pretty much everyone seems to be on board with, even the health insurance industry. They're right. willing to let they're willing to let the pre-existing conditions thing go. If, if you put yourself um, in, in the mindset of yourself when you worked back in the industry or executives who are there now, surveying these reform prospects right now, how are they feeling about what may be happening to their industry? Well, they would be willing to give up pre-existing conditions as a, a condition to uh, deny coverage because they see this as a potential bonanza for them. If And they've already gotten the president to go along or change his course and, and agree that everyone should be forced to get coverage. And uh, that would mean that if there's no public option, they would have billions of dollars in new revenue that would come from new policyholders and for those who can't afford to pay their overpriced premiums, taxpayers' dollars that would go into these companies. And a lot of it would come out on the other end in terms of 
profits for the shareholders. So it's a, a sweet deal for them. They have said in the past, by the way, that they would they'd be willing to give up pre-existing conditions. They said this in congressional testimony back in 1993. Uh, it's empty rhetoric, but they would be willing to go along with it, first of all, because I don't think they can avoid it this time. And secondly, uh, in exchange for getting all these new customers, you betcha they go along with it. When I think about my own health insurance coverage and my own family's experience, my friend's experience with health insurance coverage, I have been through a long period of my life when I was uninsured. A lot of people in my family and my friends have been through time when we were uninsured. But I also know a lot of people who have health insurance right now but still feel that we are underinsured, still feel that we're being given unaffordable costs even after paying unaffordable premiums. Do you feel like the sort of new regulations for the industries, including getting rid of pre-existing conditions, but all the other things that are being proposed, would actually make our insurance less bad if we're all going to be required to have it? No, I think it would make it even more bad. Uh, Pre-existing conditions could be eliminated, and I think they should be. It should be made illegal a long time ago. But, but a lot of the, the legislation would would still enable, in fact, it would sanction or enable the companies to continue shifting more and more of the cost of health care to us. Uh, the so-called premiums might be more affordable comparatively, but the on the, the other end of that is that they would make us pay more out of our own pocket uh, for coverage. So the, the goal of making sure that no one has to file for bankruptcy because of medical bills is, is a pipe dream with the kind of legislation we're seeing right now. And that is the argument for the public option to compete right. with the private system. so complicated, I get a headache just thinking about it. And my insurance company says that's a pre-existing condition. <laughs> I don't understand why the Democrats are rushing this bill instead of patiently waiting for the Republicans to take back Congress. <laughs> for instance, just last week, the Finance Committee rejected Kentucky Senator Jim Bunning's request that before they vote on the bill, it be posted for 72 hours on the Internet. That way, we'll know the bill's a failure if it's played off by Piano Cat. <laughs> Maine Senator Olympia Snow made a compelling argument for the delay. I do believe that the American people are rightfully entitled to see exactly what we are doing, what we are legislating. Words matter. She is right. Words do matter. That's why I love my Republican word-a-day calendar. <laughs> oh, look, I'm, uh, I'm a couple of days behind. really builds your vocabulary. <laughs> well, recently, Kansas Senator Pat Roberts explained the real reason we should delay this vote. The thing I'm trying to point out is that we would at least have 72 hours yes. for the people that the providers have hired to keep up with all of the legislation that we pass around here and the regulations we pass around here to say, hey, wait a minute, have you considered this? See? All he wants is some time for health care lobbyists to change the bill. <laughs> That's a bold admission, and it brings us to tonight's word. <laughs> Out of the closet. <laughs> Folks, there are some things that everybody knows, but nobody says. For instance... For instance, he doesn't talk about it, but everyone on this show knows that Jeff in accounting is gay. 
But now I've said it, so it's out. And that is the best thing for Jeff. Now, in much the same way, Senator Roberts has broken the silence and admitted that he is in a committed, consensual relationship with the pharmaceutical and insurance industries. It's a freaky three-way. I say good for you, sir. The truth shall set you free. We all know, we all know that our politicians have these relationships. From September until May, Congress is just one big appropriations cruise on both sides of the aisle. Well, I say it is time for Congress to stop introducing lobbyists as their roommate. Don't, don't be ashamed of who you are. Shout it. Be proud. Get up there and shout it from the top of the Capitol Dome. Lobbyists write all the legislation. Now, so what? So what if Congress doesn't write it? Evidently, they don't read it. The bill that came out of the Health Committee is already more than a thousand pages. Over a thousand pages. I love these members that get up and say, read the bill. What good is reading the bill if it's a thousand pages? It's a thousand pages. So, it is none of our business. It is none of our business what goes on between consenting adults in the privacy of the congressional cloakroom. Shame time. Shame time is over, okay? It's time for lawmakers like Max Baucus to stop hiding their relationships and start printing bumper stickers like these. Max Baucus, I take more money from the healthcare lobby than anyone in Congress. And you know what? That's not enough. There should be pride parades. Republicans and Democrats locked arm in arm marching down K Street, chanting their fierce message of freedom. We're here. We're insincere. Get used to it. And folks, we would get used to it because we know it's happening already. And that's the word. to health care reform and talk a little bit about the public option. David, you had a, a great phrase this week about the, the Dems' split personality disorder around health insurance. Can you kind of explain what you meant by that? Well, exactly at the same time that um, several, actually five Democrats in the Senate Finance Committee were voting with all eight uh, Republicans on the Senate Finance Committee, or, or is it ten, I forget now, uh, maybe ten, to kill the public option amendment offered by Democratic Senator Jay Rockefeller. At the same time that five Democrats are doing that, Harry Reid's office, the Democratic majority leader, was sending out a press release, you know, saying just how bad the health insurance uh, industry is and why, you know, we have to basically shove reform down its throat. And so you had two real competing messages here. You had, the, you know, the Democratic leadership of the Senate saying we really have to do something about the health insurance uh, lobby and, and, and industry, that they cannot be trusted with our health care any longer, and, you know, we need some pretty uh, significant measures. But yet five members of the Democratic caucus in the Senate, you know, voting in essence to protect 
the private health insurance industry from any competition from a public source. And so here you go. Republicans, <laughs> they're united. They're just going to vote no on everything. They just reject, you know, even seeming the need for a significant reform of the health care system. But the Democrats are fighting amongst themselves on some of these basic, basic points. And so it ends up like they look like they have, you know, a personality split, uh, mixed messages. And in politics, that, that can be very dangerous. You know, of course, many of the Democrats, you know, people in the grassroots of the party are outraged at Max Baucus, the Democratic chair of the committee, and other Democrats for voting against this. And that's just not good. That's not good for business. It's not good dynamics for the Democratic Party. Kevin, how's your health care optimism level today? Yeah, you know, the thing about this that I think is, is, you know, in politics, you need to give people things that are popular, right? I mean, I mean, you need to do the wonky stuff. You need to get the policy right. But you've also got to give people stuff they like. And one of the big problems that Democrats have with the bill, health care bills as they stand now, is, you know, they've all got an individual mandate, right? So that means you are required to buy health insurance. Well, the last thing that Democrats need to do is to require people to buy health insurance and then require them to buy it from the very industry that they've been demonizing with very good reason for, for, for a long time. If you're going to require people to buy it, you've just got to give them the option to buy it. Uh, from the government if that's what they want to do. And I think it's just going to really hurt them if they don't give people something that's visible and popular, not you know, not some sort of down-in-the-weeds wonky thing that you, you can't explain in 100 years. Uh, they really need to deal with this. And, you know, as David was alluding to, the, you know, the really ironic part of the whole thing is that the, the Democrats who are opposed to the public option are supposedly the centrist, the fiscal conservatives. And yet the public option actually makes the whole thing cost less. So, I mean, none of it makes any sense. A woman was a dream I had, but rather hard to keep. For when my eyes were watching hers, they closed, and I was still asleep. For when my hand was holding hers, she whispered words, and I awoke. And faintly bouncing round the room, the echo of whomever spoke. There's no more gang of six. There's, there's no more faith-based, mythical, kumbaya, bipartisan compromise. Finally, the whole committee, 13 Democrats and 10 Republicans, were able to vote today on whether Americans, at least some of us, will get the option of buying the same kind of health care that people with Medicare currently enjoy. On the table today were two different amendments to put a public option in the bill, one from Senator Chuck Schumer of New York, one from Senator Jay Rockefeller of West Virginia. 70% of the American people want this. I know supporters of the status quo are saying that it's simply, again, a government takeover, but let me set the record straight once and forever. This will be optional. Nobody has to do this. But I feel so strongly about it because it makes so much sense. The people that I represent need this. That was Senator Rockefeller, of course, from the Republican side. So if you support single-payer health care, if you support longer waits, crowded emergency rooms, lower quality of care, in other words, the rationing or the denial of care or the delay of care that you get in single-payer systems, do you want that for America? Rationing? Denial of care? Is that what's actually being proposed? Surely Democrats aren't going to let that sort of litany of negative descriptions slide, are they? The main knock you've made on Senator Rockefeller's amendment, I presume wow. on mine, is it's government run. Yeah. But Medicare is government run, and most people like it very much. Okay. But if it, and it will come to a single payer, and that denies the American people choice. What's good now about 
Medicare Advantage is people in my state have 44 choices to go to. Uh, and, uh, and, and what you uh, would be leading us to would be a system where there isn't choice. Now, I want to give senior citizens choice. Would the senator yield? Would yeah. Senator Grassley yield? Now, you just made a statement that it will lead to a single payer. Yeah. How in the world do you make that leap? Well, you know, there are health economists around here, and I can only quote two. One is Heritage says that 83 million people are going to be forced out of their plan, employer plans, into public option. And Lewin Group says 120 million. Who, 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 who's that? Uh, it's Heritage Foundation, right-wing think tank, and the Lewin Group. Those are the research firms he can remember that have been supplying congressional Republicans with their information about why health reform is such a bad idea. Conveniently, the Lewin Group is the health insurance industry. The Lewin Group is run by a wholly owned subsidiary of United Healthcare Group, which is the second largest health insurance company in the country. Beyond the statements of the senator from United Health, then, any other major arguments against the public option today? If you went home in August uh, and, and you heard from your constituents the way that most of us heard from our constituents, uh, people are really afraid of the, quote, uh, public option. I put it in quotes because uh, many of us on this side believe that it will lead to a government-run system, that it will lead to a single-payer. People are really afraid, says Senator Ensign. In fact, 65% of Americans are so afraid of the public option that they said in the last New York Times CBS poll that they would please like a public option. 65%. You know, the least surprising news of the day today was that not a single Republican would vote in accordance with that 65% of the American people. Not a single Republican would vote for the public option. But that doesn't really legislatively matter, right? After all, the committee has a Democratic majority, and surely Democrats will vote for a public option, won't they? My job is to put together a bill that gets 60 votes. Now, I can count. And no one has been able to show me how we can count up to 60 votes with a public option in the bill. Democratic Chairman Max Baucus says it's not that he doesn't want a public option. He does. He just won't vote for it unless everyone does. <sighs> Leadership. Um, in all, on the first public option choice, Senator Rockefeller's amendment, there were five Democrats who voted no. Mr. Conrad. No. Mr. Conrad, no. Mrs. Lincoln. No. Mrs. Lincoln, no. Mr. Nelson. No. Mr. Nelson, no. Mr. Carper. Mr. Carper, no. Mr. Chairman. No. Mr. Chairman, no. Thus, the Rockefeller Amendment in a majority Democratic committee dies, with only eight senators in favor and 15 voting against. Senator Schumer, your turn. There's no question that the public option would improve this good bill. So what say you, Democrats, to the second public option choice of the day, the Chuck Schumer Amendment? I will vote for the Schumer Amendment. Senator Nelson of Florida switches sides. He's on board now. Anybody else? Mr. Carper. I by proxy. Mr. Carper, I by proxy. Senator Carper of Delaware switches sides too. Will the remaining three anti-Rockefeller Amendment Democrats now follow suit? Mr. Conrad. No. Mr. Conrad, no. Mrs. Lincoln. No by proxy. Mrs. Lincoln, no by proxy. Mr. Chairman. No. Chairman votes no. No, no, and no. And let me guess, Mr. Chairman, Senator Baucus, you voted against a Democratic amendment for an option you say you support. Again, why? Because? Um, I don't see that uh, below this committee with public option uh, gets 60 votes. I'm constrained to vote against the amendment. That's at 3.50 p.m. Eastern Time in a 10-4-13 against vote. The Charles Schumer public option amendment died alongside its Rockefeller counterpart. If you feel like you're just one travel mug away from total contentment, you need to check out the Best of the Left store. 
Between my Cafe Press and Print Fection stores, I've got all the t-shirts, travel mugs, and tote bags you could possibly want to show your best of left pride. If it's a gift you're looking for, then go no farther than a podcast by mail subscription. It's a great way to introduce the show to someone who's not into the whole podcasting scene, but would love to hear it every week sent to them on a CD. Just go to the store tab at bestofleft.com. A sixth of our economy is based on people getting sick in this country. That's what health care is. That's apparently why they can't really take the profit margin out of it. That's a lot of sick people and a lot of money being made on sick people. And I just read that maybe in one of your columns that new job creation is mostly in health care. It's mostly sick people. And I've heard the phrase, it's a sick society. It's literally true. Well, it's a sick society. The people are sick, and we make money on the sick people. We need to get job growth in sectors that create wealth that is going to be long-term. Health and government are not where we want job growth. You're absolutely right about that, which is why I think the president rightly has said we want two things. One, we want universal coverage. And two, we need to constrain the rate of growth of health care spending. Separate issues analytically, but we need to hit both or else there won't be money left over for the manufacturing sector and the technology sectors that we need to grow. Can I say, Elliot, even you've got a little bit of this, we don't want jobs in government. How about no, school teachers? You no, know, no, 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 I, I, I excluded education. Okay, okay yeah. I, I, yeah, education those are, is separate. Edu yeah. And nobody increased the education budget more than I did when I was governor. Sure. Because no, that is the key to the future. That's right. But, no, but point that is, is not. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's nothing wrong with, with you know, with health care jobs if they're actually making people healthy. If what you're doing is having huge armies of bureaucrats, and the thing is, in this case, it's private sector bureaucrats. The insurance companies are far more bureaucratic than Medicare is. Um, huge armies of bureaucrats basically trying to figure out who really needs health insurance coverage so as not to give it to them, which is the way our system currently works right now. Uh, that's, that's a waste. And, you know, we, get, we spend 16% of GDP on health care. Uh, European France spends about 10. They do better. They cover everybody. They've got Longer life expectancy by all of... So this is all... You know, everybody we talks about this system. We have to keep our people sick. I mean, let's get real. Well, For this economy, I mean, that's a big leg in the table. You know, I think we would find some other useful things to spend the money on if, if, we, if we could. Well, but to your point, I remember I was on the board of a hospital at one point. I remember the first board meeting I went to, they said the occupancy rate is 98%. And I said, that's terrible. They said, no, 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 that's good. We want people in here. I said, isn't that backwards? We want them out. They said, no, we want them in. So I understand your point, but the fact of the matter is getting them healthy is also a good thing. There's nothing to do here. Some just whine and complain. In bed at the hospital. Coming and going. Asleep and awake. In bed at the hospital. Conservative Democrats on the Senate Finance Committee, the people who I've called the conservatives, were forced to pick sides on health reform, and pick sides they did when they joined the unanimous Republicans in voting against two versions of the public option, amendments that would provide one real alternative for Americans who are not served by the lousy, unaffordable, for-profit health insurance industry that we've got now. Democratic Senator Max Baucus explained his decision to vote against the public option with the adult equivalent of the everyone else's doing it too, excuse. My job is to put together a bill that gets 60 votes. Now I can count. And no one has been able to show me how we can count up to 60 votes with a public option in the bill. I don't see the 
uh, below this committee with public option uh, gets 60 votes. I'm constrained to vote against the amendment. Ah, leadership. I like this idea, but why would I vote for something I like? Unless everyone else likes it too. Senator Bacchus was not alone. The most conservative of the conservatives, Ben Nelson of Nebraska, told a home state crowd yesterday that any health reform bill would need not simply a majority of 51 votes or a supermajority of filib filibustered 60 votes, but according to Ben Nelson, Democrat, Health reform should have 65 votes in the Senate, a super-duper, duper majority. Senator Nelson explained, quote, anything less than that would challenge its legitimacy. And so it was that legitimate majority came to mean 65% up from its original definition of 50 plus 1. So far, as Talking Points Memo points out today, uh, you should also know that S Senator Nelson won his first Senate term with 51% of the vote. He won his second Senate term with 64% of the vote. So by his own 65% super-duper-duper legitimate majority standard, Senator Nelson isn't really a senator. Not a legitimate senator, anyway. Be careful what you wish for. Joining us now is Howard Dean, former chairman of the Democratic National Committee, former governor of Vermont. Governor Dean, it's great to have you here. Thanks. Thanks for having me back. Um, you just heard my interview with Senator Schumer, and he said something that I haven't heard him articulate before, which is that Democratic leadership should be able to expect that even Democrats who are going to vote against health reform should vote for cloture, should vote to end a Republican filibuster, thereby making the threshold 51 votes instead of 60. What, what, what's That's your reaction? That's true. A core uh, procedure in almost every legislature I've ever had anything to do with, including the national legislature, is you can vote however you want on the bill. That's that's a conscience matter, but you owe it to your leadership who gives you your chairmanship uh, to vote with the leadership on procedural votes and a filibuster is a procedural vote. So I would expect all the people caucusing with the Democrats to, to allow a vote to go forward. And, and so you the, you know, the, the chairman's argument is specious. You don't need 60 votes for a public option. You need 51 under any circumstances if the people who caucus with the Democratic Party and owe their chairs to the Democratic uh, leadership uh, are willing to do the right thing. You're not chairman anymore, but you have worked with a lot of the key players mm -hmm. um, in the upper echelons of the Democratic Party right now. Do they have it in them to insist on that, to insist that all Democrats vote for cloture? We're going to, oh yeah, I, I think this, the leader would look terrible if he couldn't get the votes for cloture out of the Democratic caucus. Um, and I think they will support uh, Harry. He's been very good to them uh, and he's a good leader. Uh, but you need 51 votes. The other thing about this is reconciliation. You need 51 votes. Explain uh, what that is. Reconciliation a is, a, is, a, is a rule. There's a yeah. The, the, the Senate has a filibuster rule. 60 people can grind. I mean, 40 people can grind the place to a halt. You got to get her 41. You got to get at least 60 to proceed if folks want to uh, want to talk it to death. But they also prohibit you from doing that in the budget. And for example, the Bush's tax cuts went into the budget so that he wouldn't need a. a, a a 60-vote majority to pass it, and this is a major piece of legislation. It could be passed in the budget. If you wanted to use Medicare to expand the public option and let people under 65 buy into Medicare, which is a really smart idea because for the Democrats it means you can get the program up and running by 2010, you could do that in the reconciliation bill with no problem at all because it doesn't require any new language and the budget's balanced. So in terms of if we believe that the leadership is committed to a public option, it seems like option A is get 60 Democrats to vote for it, option B is in that Democrats vote procedurally with Democrats, and then you have a 51 vote. Uh, you have a 51 vote threshold right. because you defeated the filibuster. Option C is don't even try for that; just pass it under reconciliation do, rules. And they can try option A and B, and if that doesn't work, then they can go to C. Right. Look, this, if the leadership, if the Democrats want this, they're going to get a public option. Do you think they want it? I do. Well, I, I think they do want it. I think they're nervous about it, but 65 percent of the American people want it. Look, here's the problem with these guys: they're stuck uh, in the more conservative states. There's a lot of uh, venom against. It, even though the majority of people want it. And a lot of these guys have taken millions of dollars from the health insurance industry and yeah. they're stuck. And that's a real problem. And it's a t if we don't pass this thing, we're going to lose a lot of seats. And if we don't pass, everybody in the America now knows that without a public option, this thing is a farce. You're setting, sending $60 billion of taxpayers' money every year to the health insurance industry. 
who are ripping people off, kicking them off their insurance if they get sick, charging sick people two and three or four times as much as they charge healthy people. What we need is an option so people can choose not to be in that system. And that's what the public option fight is about. Can, who gets to choose? Does Chairman Baucus get to choose for everybody in America? Or do you get to choose what kind of insurance is best for you and your family? And we are arguing that give the American people the choice. Let us reform health care. We don't trust the politicians to reform health care. Give us the opportunity to do that. And the best way to do that is to give us some choices, like the public option. If, if some part of the reason that, that, that part of the thing that's blocking political progress on this is that the health insurance industry and the, and the medical industry, the people who profit from the system being broken the way it is now, have essentially lined the pockets of a lot of members of Congress That's and senators. True. If that is the problem, how do you beat that problem? You can't outspend them retroactively well, now. Well, the, people, public, the public them? doesn't like it, and that's some of that's going on. Some of the left-wing groups are... Well, I shouldn't say left-wing, because, you know, when 65% of the American people want something, it's not exactly... That's a big the, wing. It's pretty... <laughs> that's the, what I call the Democratic wing of the Democratic Party, right. which is bigger than the Democratic Party itself. Um, but, you know, the more progressive groups are really upset about this, and I don't blame them, because this is not health care reform. What, what Chairman Baucus wants to do is not health care reform. And, you know, I thank, I'm very uh, grateful for Senator Rockefeller and Senator Schumer and for their uh, bills. I, I take great hope in the fact that Senator Carper and Senator Nelson switched their votes because that means some form of a public option, however weak, will get out of the Senate. And if that happens, we'll have a public option. But this is not because we want a single payer. This is so the American people have something they can choose between, uh, between the private sector and the public sector. What they want to do is choose to buy into Medicare. That's essentially what this is. And most 65% of the American people would like that choice. To be that good, it must be taxing. There's no such thing as satisfaction. You're making things happen while I'm relaxing like a Sunday afternoon. My dad used to tell me I was lazy. I got dance moves like Patrick Swayze. I'm the leftover turkey for the world's mayonnaise. The star next to the moon. legislative exile, a power diaspora. But all that changed in 2006 when the Democrats regained control of this nation's House of Representatives and its Senate. And with that control, they still failed to get timelines for Iraq war withdrawals, government negotiated prescription drug prices, any kind of meaningful environmental legislation. Actually, really failed to get anything. Uh, <laughs> Basically, the Democrats seem like the kind of people who switch to Geico and lose money. They, they... <laughs> but it's really only because until recently, they didn't have that one thing that would finally allow them to execute their agenda. Supermajority, a political earthquake. Filibuster proof. Republicans will be powerless to stop them. Senate Democrats have a supermajority of 60, the biggest they've had in more than a generation. The power to steamroll his agenda through the Senate. They will be unstoppable! <laughs> it'll be like, it'll be like, it'll be like a bear with, with chainsaws instead of paws. <laughs> Well, yesterday, the creature was unleashed as Democrats unveiled their plans for a government-run health care option. Oh, chainsaw-pawed bear of reform. Have mercy on your opponent's souls. The Senate Finance Committee voted down two amendments proposed by Democrats that included a government-run health care option. What the f***? <laughs> I'm sorry, a, a bear with chainsaws for paws <laughs> cannot get a bill out of the finance committee? You have a super majority. And the latest New York Times poll shows 65% of Americans support a public option. Hell, 70% of doctors support it. 
What Republican counter-argument was so persuasive as to negate those facts? If you ask the question, as one poll did, uh, that uh, would you support a public option if it would weaken private uh, health strategies that we've had for decades in this country on health insurance, uh, you got less than a majority uh, of doctors supporting it. Oh, fair, fair point, sure. Okay, touche. <laughs> Fair point. But then again, if you ask the question, do you support a public option that skull f***s kittens? Uh, that, that would also lower support, but that's not what it is. For God's sakes, Democrats, they're countering your arguments with nonsense and crushing you. Here's Senator Ensign answering the question, if our health care system is so good, why do we have the 19th worst preventable death rate in the world? If you take out accidental deaths due to car accidents and you take out gun deaths because we have a lot, you know, we like our guns in the United States. If you take out those two things, you adjust those, and we actually do better as far as survival rates. true. Uh, uh, I imagine also if you took out Senator Ensign's long-term affair with a staffer from his marriage, uh, that makes you nearly monogamous. <laughs> is what it is. Here's the best part. Even following Senator Ensign's logic only pops us up to 17th in longevity. Still not convinced that the Democrats couldn't get laid in a house whose sole purpose is to have consequence and disease-free sex with legislators on finance committees? <laughs> well, strap in, kids. Here's Republican strategist Frank Luntz. If you call it a public option, the American people are split. If you call it the government option, the public is overwhelmingly against it. Hmm. Sounds to me like if you call it the public option, you'll garner more support. Then if you try and come up with a different, more convoluted title for your plan, well, why don't we play our new game, Democrats <laughs> that up. I don't call it the public option. I think public plan is really the wrong sort of name for this, a public interest option. A level playing field public option. What I call the consumer choice health plan. Hey, uh, I got an idea. Why don't we call this plan AIDS? <laughs> Anybody? Why don't we call it AIDS? Hey. American Insurance Department Solutions. Hey, what do you think? My plan is let's give everyone in this country AIDS. What? Where's everybody going? What's wrong? By the way, there was one piece of legislation that the Democratic supermajority did manage to get out of the Finance Committee. The Senate Finance Committee voting last night to spend $50 million a year for abstinence-only education. So in conclusion, if I may, the Democratic supermajority had both of their amendments for a public option shot down whilst simultaneously funding the abstinence-only programs that have been proven not to work. Charles Schumer, Senator from New York, why don't you sum up how the Dems are feeling today? So I think that uh, we're feeling good, and uh, all of us are pleasantly surprised that we're making progress. Well, then you're a idiot. All right. You must be out of your mind. Oh, wait, I get it. You're the lame dad at a Little League game. Just because your team lost doesn't mean you lost. You were outside. <laughs> You made friends, you had fun. Put, put the bat down, honey. Thanks for listening, everybody. So after the, the most recent episode, the one focused on religion, I actually got an email response to the show. A very unhappy guy wrote in, and I never get those. I mean, like, I, I don't get positive or negative emails that actually reference a specific show. I just, I mean, ask yourself, have you ever written in because you wanted to talk about a specific episode? Well, the answer uh, in all likelihood is no for you. 
And so know that the answer is pretty much the same for almost every other listener of the show. So anyways, this, this one guy wrote in, was really unhappy about the topic of religion. He was very offended. And since I got this one email, I was like, wow, this is like a flood of uh, response about the show just by comparison to what I usually get. And, and so I thought, this must be a, a big backlash on this episode, which, I mean, frankly, I kind of expect every time I post one about religion, but they never come. And I don't know if it's because I've scared off all of the religious people a long time ago or, or what. But in any case, this one was an outlier, and I, I thought there may be some uh, backlash about the episode. So I posted on Twitter and Facebook that there was such a backlash, um, at least a small one. And I encouraged other people to leave their comments. Just I, I said, hey, I'm going to read some comments on the show. If you have any about the episode, let me know. And... In my opinion, unfortunately, all I got was positive responses. No, 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 it's fine. Don't worry about it. Don't, don't take any crap like that. And, um, but anyway, since I said I was going to read some comments, I'll, I'll read what this guy says because he's probably representative of a few other people out there. And, uh, and so I, I, I don't mind addressing it. So uh, Big Jim writes, uh, I loved your podcast and was a regular listener until this episode, uh, the most recent one, on 10.3 when your compilation focused on bashing people of the Christian faith. And then this is my favorite part of, of it, because he writes, Needless to say, I unsubscribed and no longer support the podcast. And so just for some context, he writes at the, at the very top, I was a happy and faithful listener. And then this one episode, since I do a show about religion, every, you know, once every month and a half or so, needless to say, baby out with, with the bathwater. Uh, he was going to have no more of that. And he goes on to say that because one has a liberal or progressive views, it's wrong to assume that they are also agnostic or atheist, which I agree with. I, I don't assume that about any of my listeners. And, uh, and so he says that he was insulted and uh, will no longer wish to listen, which he says is sad. And I agree. I think that is sad. So I just wanted to use this as a jumping off point to just do a, a real quick review of kind of where I'm coming from on this, because I'm well aware that the shows on religion insult people in in a way that other episodes just don't, because religion is a sensitive topic. It, you know, it's the most obvious thing in the world. And, you know, he and so he also wrote an email, actually. He, that, that was a one-star review he posted in iTunes. But he also wrote an email talking about how he was a fan of the show and was considering becoming a member and how I really screwed things up by insulting him because now he's not going to support the show. So I just wanted to respond and say that, you know, this show, when you really come down to it, is nothing more and nothing less than the podcast that I most wanted to listen to. From the very beginning, I said that I was creating this podcast because it was the show I wished existed. And so if that's what the show is going to be, then... I'm just going to make it the way I want it, and people are going to like it or not like it. Obviously, I'm not trying to offend people either. It just is what it is. But I think I've struck a fairly good balance about making everyone happy. Because, you know, there's a couple of ways to go about making everyone happy. You can be totally vanilla and really, really uninteresting, and then you'll do a good job of not insulting anyone, but you won't be entertaining either. So what I've done is I've, I've tried to make this absolutely the most user-friendly podcast in the world. Every episode is broken down by a different topic. Within every episode is broken down by different segments. With the enhanced version of the podcast, you can skip around really easily, uh, segment to segment. So if there's one you like or one you don't like, skip over it or rewind to listen to again. And then even beyond that, you think it's an accident that I put myself at the end of the show? I'm very well aware that there are a lot of people who don't have any interest in what I have to say. They come, they listen to the best of clips that I compile, and then they stop listening to the show. There's no need to listen at the end. If they don't like what I have to say or don't like me or whatever, that's totally fine. So, you know, pretty much everything I've done with the show, every decision I've made about the show has been about making it really user-friendly. So if there are parts you don't like, whether it be parts of a show or entire episodes, 
to deal with a, a certain topic you don't want to hear about, don't listen. So, anyways, that that's how I've attempted to make everyone happy by just making it really easy for you to make yourself happy. You listen to what you like, you don't listen to what you don't like, and everyone's happy. What could be better? So that's more than enough on that, but uh, for anyone who is kind of in the same boat as uh, as Big Jim 59 <laughs> on iTunes, I'd like it if you knew that my purpose is not to insult you, and if you are, you know, I'd, I'd love it if you stick around for the rest of the episodes, and if you're offended by the religious ones, skip right over them. No problem for me on that. So anyways, now of course I have to remind you to nominate the show in the podcast awards, uh, which actually reminds me, in, in the email Jim sent, he also mentioned he wouldn't be supporting me in the podcast awards, which is unfortunate. So of course now everyone else has to step it up just a little bit more to make up for, for that slack. This year, of course, I'm asking to be nominated in the best produced category as well as the politics category. And if you're feeling up to it, go ahead and help out our friends over at the Young Turks who are making a run for the People's Choice Award. And then finally, the members of the day, Robert G. signed up on August 26th, went above and beyond the minimum membership level, as well as Charlotte R., who signed up on September 29th and not only went above and beyond the minimum membership level, she also signed up for the yearly membership plan, which is awesome for everyone involved because, you know, Charlotte, of course, she's getting a discounted rate. She actually pays less than if she paid by the month, and she helps out the show just as much, and we're just cutting out the middleman a little bit, and the, the fees by PayPal are way less when you pay by the year, so everyone's a winner except PayPal, and we don't care about them. Anyways, so definite thanks to Robert and Charlotte who, uh, who really stepped up to help out the show, of course, uh, these two, as well as all the members, get the warm and fuzzy feeling of knowing that they're really helping out the show and keeping it going the way it is. I couldn't, I just couldn't be doing two episodes a week without the support of the members. But of course, beyond the warm and fuzzy feeling, they also get access to the Best of the Left raw feed, where they get all of the clips that end up in the show, as well as some bonus stuff that never makes the final cut. There's just too much good stuff out there. It can't all fit in the show. And when available materials delivered in their original video format. So that is it for today. Stay connected with the show on Twitter and Facebook or by signing up for our email newsletter. Support the show with uh, reviews on iTunes. Not like those one-star reviews that uh, the Jim left, but uh, five-star reviews really help us out. And nominations this month at the Podcast Awards at podcastawards.com. The show is available on your smartphone by going to stitcher.com and the show notes can be found on our blog where you'll find all the links to the sources and all the music used in the episode. So coming to you from inside the Beltway and border, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay and this has been the Best of the Left podcast delivered to you every Wednesday and every weekend. Thanks to the members from bestoftheleft.com. Burning on a shining sheet The only maker that you want to